Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pearls of Wellness, brought to you by the Center for African American Health. I'm your host, Deidre Johnson. In this episode, we'll be discussing the urgency of addressing Black maternal health. My special guest, Dr. Patrice Hairston Peets, will discuss the challenges and solutions to achieving Black birth equity. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Patrice Harrison Peets to chat with us today. Dr. Patrice, it is so wonderful to have you here. It's so great to be here. Thank you for asking me to come on and talk about this really important topic. And one of the things that has always inspired me about you, because I remember when we first met, <laughs> you were expecting your first and yep. you were working for the College Children's Health Access Program. And since then, you've really had experiences in every part of the system we're discussing today. So a real true um, view of all the ins and outs and all the various barriers. So I'm excited to get into it. I'm really excited to talk about this topic, Deidre. So as you know, this is a topic that I am so passionate about from an individual level, a community level, a systems level. So just so thrilled to talk about um, the issues facing the Black birthing community. Dr. Patrice, a lot of people sometimes hear the term infant mortality, but don't really know what that means. And they don't really understand that it doesn't affect every community the same way. Yep. Can you share a little bit about disparities in that area for our community? Sure. So I, I think that a lot of times too, Deidre, we there's not always a clear connection between understanding the statistics around maternal mortality and morbidity and infant mortality. So Black infants in Colorado, um, there's about 10 deaths per 1,000 live births, which is extremely high given our state average. I think that in Colorado, we're considered one of the healthiest states, um, lots of good access to health care, and yet Black babies are still dying at twice the rates of white babies, non-Hispanic white babies, um, which is concerning. And there's also, you know, I think that this is a conversation that many have at the policy table, at the community table, that we're also dealing with high statistics around maternal mortality and morbidity. And so not only do we have black mothers and birthers um, <clears throat> that are experiencing disproportionate negative outcomes around birth, but we're giving birth to infants that are low birth weight, um, which can lead is, an, is a risk factor for infant mortality. Um, and this is an issue that the community has been battling for decades. Um, and although we've seen some of those gaps narrow a bit, um, the numbers are not what they should be, given um, just the state of health um, for moms and babies across the board in Colorado. And so when we think about, like, what, what would success look like when you think about closing that disparity? Um, you know, we wouldn't have to have committees and groups um, that that are that need to address this issue because we would be seeing lower maternal mortality and morbidity and infant mortality statistics across the board. And, um, you know, there just wouldn't be a need necessarily for us to have these conversations because we wouldn't be seeing the disparities and the discrepancies between racial groups with race being the centering factor, not socioeconomic status, not um, <clears throat> 
access to healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, sort of those social determinants that we typically blame um, for disparities in outcome. We, we would see no disparities, so we wouldn't have a need to um, be addressing this as a broader community issue. That is so true because people, people like to conflate race and poverty on this topic. Yes. One thing we do know is that a white woman is a white woman without a high school diploma is guaranteed a better birth experience than a black woman with a PhD. Correct. And so when we control for those things, this still happens at an alarming rate, which really points to the toxic effects of systemic racism. Correct. Correct. And these and these effects occur at all levels of the system um, that is serving the black birthing population and really the um, early childhood population, right, which would include our, our folks zero to five, kiddos zero to five. Um, so we're talking about health care in terms of the perinatal period and not just access, because I think as you spoke to talking about poverty and race, folks are like, well, it must just be that um, black birthers are not accessing healthcare um, at the same rate. So that must be what it is. Um, it's really the experience that black birthers are having as they are moving through the healthcare system, experience with providers, with, you know, starting from the front desk to the physician, to the nurses, to the other supportive staff, um, not being listened, not being heard to, not having concerns taken seriously. Um, and really just not having from a research perspective, right? We know we see this in the literature um, around black patient experience. Um, that there are lower quality scores across the board. Um, and, you know, we're not getting access to pain medications at the same rates. There's some clear disc discrepancies in care. And that's not just qualitative stories that are being shared. Um, that's documented in the literature. And so that affects the entire continuum of experiences that a Black birther is having from you know, pregnancy, and that can include trying to get pregnant, right? IVF, miscarriages, et cetera, um, all the way through the birth experience. So actually giving birth. So we see those discrepancies occur at multiple points um, in the healthcare system. And here in Colorado, um, over 90% of the babies that are born here are born in hospital systems. Um, so most of the babies in our community are, and most of the birthers in our community are utilizing and trusting these systems with their care. And, um, and you know, like I said, it's been documented in the literature and the research literature that we're not experiencing the same treatment as other groups. And, and along with that, can you talk a little bit about the term that we hear often called weathering? Yes. Yep. So this is a phenomenon that really was, um, you know, outlined by a public health researcher. And it essentially discusses how the conditions, the social conditions, the economic conditions, all the conditions of living for um, Black folks in a culture that is really centered around lifting up whiteness um, as the norm, right? So that, that there's a weathering effect that occurs um, for folks that impacts your physical health, your emotional health, your mental health. So the experience of moving through the world as a black individual, experiencing microaggressions, experiencing, um, you know, dealing with issues in terms of work and dealing with, you know, there's, there's just a wide range of experiences and different points in time that um, the black community experiences 
racism. And it has an effect on our physical health and our physical bodies. So the effect, talking about weathering as a phenomenon um, is something that I really like to lift up in this space because um, sometimes we're coming into physical healthcare experiences, you know, like experiencing um, racism, microaggressions, and we've been experiencing that throughout our entire lives. So there is a physical health effect um, to weathering. And I think that's so important to understand because I know I'm of a generation where, yes, these things happen. You just figure, you just, you know, put on your girl, big girl pants and keep moving. Yes. But in doing that, it doesn't honor the damage that it's doing to us day after day, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. Absolutely, Deidre. I think it's, and I think that, you know, for when you're looking historically at our community, that soldiering through has really been a theme for survival. Um, you know, just for survival, I have to push through. I've got a, one trauma to the next trauma to the next trauma, and we've just got to survive. And I think as a community, we're really thinking more deeply about how we thrive um, from a health perspective, from a mental health perspective. Um, and that's acknowledging that the experiences that our ancestors have had, the experiences that our community has had, um, are impacting our physical health in, in this time, right? In this real time. Um, and so I think it's just really important to, to acknowledge that, um, you know, to acknowledge that history and to acknowledge the impact that it has on our physical health. And, you know, that it's not okay. Cause even with, you know, the, the birthing stories that you hear, you know, I, I have two sons, they were born in 2003, 2004, after the birth of both, I ended up in ICO, ICU with postpartum mm -hmm. eclampsia. Yeah. But the, the most riveting thing about it for me or frustrating thing was I was just not listened to in so many ways. And then, you know, fast forward, thankfully, Serena Williams shared her story. But then it was as if, as if the system suddenly acted like this is something new. Yes. It's constantly been going on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and I think with the work that I do, Deidre, and certainly the work that you do at the center, um, we hear these stories every day. We hear stories about, and they're, and some of them have been become high profile, they've been in the news, um, but certainly just from folks here locally in community, we hear, um, I called my doctor's office and I called my doctor's office and I said I was having pain and you know I was sort of brushed off or I was told that that was normal. And I didn't feel like it was normal, but I also didn't feel like I could speak up, um, right? Because those power dynamics are ever present um, in all of these spaces. And so I didn't feel like I could speak up or I didn't want to be argumentative because what might they think about me as a person or as a parent? Um, so I didn't want to fight back. And, you know, I think we, we talk a lot in this work about advocacy and advocating um, and self-advocacy, I think. And I think our community has been pushed into a lot of self-advocacy, which um, I'm not a full-on proponent of as when you're pregnant and birthing, you're in, you can be in such a vulnerable place. Um, and so asking folks to be in that place of having to advocate so much to me um, feels like a hostile action on the part of the system and forcing us into a place of having to be advocates for ourselves instead of the system, the onus being on the system to create an emotionally, psychologically, and physically safe environment for us to birth in. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we, we hear these stories um, every day, unfortunately.
I agree with you. I think it is a, a hostile expectation. And when even when I look back at my own experience, because it was overlooked by the time attention, I was borderline incoherent and they were trying to keep me from having strokes. So, but for, you know, my father being there and my family and my husband, I, I wouldn't be alive today because they were the people advocating for me. So to, to, to expect a woman or a birthing person in the midst of this is almost like you want to, it's almost like expecting someone who's, their house is on fire and you want them to save themselves Absolutely. rather than re relying on fire. Yeah. Absolutely. Rather than creating safe and affirming conditions mm -hmm. um, or acknowledging that conditions have not been safe and affirming for our community. And the onus is on us as a healthcare system to do that work, as opposed to being on the birther in their community to have to speak up. Um, you know, so it's something that I sort of actively, um, you know, push back against in a lot of ways, just being a psychologist who works um, a lot with parents throughout the perinatal period. Um, for many, it's just a very vulnerable time. And I think, you know, back to our, you know, sort of some of the discussion we were having earlier, I think, um, particularly for Black women, um, the asking for help, the being cared for, being, because we certainly we are not in a culture that um, portrays us as being folks that need to be cared for um, and are soft and are gentle. We're really portrayed as these soldiers and we can just push through and we can just push through no pain medication and no this and you're fine. Um, and we need to be cared for and we need to be lifted up in the same way that others are. And so the onus really is on um, the systems. And I have lots of thoughts about <laughs> um, things that could happen for, you know, things that could change. Um, so that the system could be more affirming. But I think the first is acknowledging that the onus is not on the birther and their family to make the conditions safe. Can you share a little bit about um, how your profession is helping you work with mothers and what you're seeing with regard to postpartum depression or other things that yeah. people are experiencing? I would love to. So, um, and Deidre, as you said, we've known each other for a long time. I was pregnant with my first, who's now six. Um, I think as I approach this work, I approach it with multiple lenses. So um, not only am I a child psychologist with advanced training in perinatal mental health, um, I'm also a mom of a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, I'm also an individual with lived experience of postpartum depression and anxiety. And so I bring all three of those lenses into this work. And it really, um, and I pull, I sort of lean on um, those different lenses as I move through spaces with women and birthers. Um, as, it, and I'm, I'm, we haven't kind of thrown this statistic out as of yet, but postpartum depression is the most common complication of pregnancy in the postpartum period for the entire um, perinatal population. So this is something that is experienced at a one in seven rate um, amongst women and birthers. So it's extremely common. And I would suggest that that could be an underestimate because those are the folks that we know have been screened and count counted, um, so to speak. But it's extremely common. For women of color, we see rates more like one in three around perinatal mood disorders. And as we're talking about mental health in the postpartum period, it's not just postpartum depression, but postpartum anxiety, postpartum psychosis, postpartum PTSD or birth trauma. So there's a wide range of 
uh, mental health challenges that can present in this period, and they're extremely common. And what's so interesting and kind of insidious about it is you can it can be happening and you cannot really necessarily even know it's happening. I remember yes. um, I was actually on a panel with someone years ago talking about this topic, and it wasn't until she mentioned, you know, oftentimes we don't have the opportunity to grieve the birth experience that we hoped we had, but we didn't. Yeah. And that really caused me to think about, you know, those things I went through um, with my two sons. It dawned on me at that time that really, probably until they were out of grade school, I never anticipated that I would live to see them beyond them being, you know, seventh and eighth until I caught myself and said, you know what, I'm here. I need to start planning more so. But I think it was kind of that holdover of having such close calls. Um, You know, I also didn't realize until I was doing some work at the center, um, because we were trying to have more certified lactation specialists, that I had never allowed myself, because when I had eclampsia, I lost my milk both times. So I never had that opportunity. Yeah. And never really gave myself the opportunity to to grieve not having that experience that people take for granted. But yeah. if other things are happening to you, you just don't have that opportunity. Yes, absolutely, Deidre. I think that's something that um, comes up a lot in this work. So um, currently I have a few different roles in this space. So one is leading the Burr Squad Denver, which is a program of postpartum support international Colorado here in the Denver metro area. Um, and I'm also an individual therapist. So I do see folks individually. And I think what you're raising around grieving, um, you know, sort of what my expectations were, what my dreams were um, for this experience is something that comes up a lot, or even just sort of the expectations that everyone in an individual's life has said, what's going to be like this? And I can't wait for you to, to breastfeed, or I can't wait for you to baby wear. I can't wait for you to Um, you know, like to have your baby in your bed, you know, like co-sleep, whatever the um, various experiences are. Um, Oftentimes for a lot of women and birthers, their experience may look very different from maybe what their dreams were, but also what others told them that it would be like. I had to take a moment because that was so true. And you think about how many people have that story? So what was my next question? Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, and it, I don't know if we're supposed to be laughing or not. I'm trying okay. to be like so serious. <laughs> but you know, it's not my, uh, you know, not my general demeanor, but I don't want to mess up the recording. Either. <laughs> and so um, I've heard in the past that really up to 80% of these deaths are preventable. Correct. Can you speak a little bit more about that and what more we can do to be there for moms? Oh, goodness. So I think there's a few different, um, there's sort of a few different issues um, with the preventable deaths, Deidre. So I think there's, so the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, released a report um, that just, that called out the statistic that you just named around preventable deaths. So uh, across several states, um, there are these maternal mortality review committees and we have one here in Colorado um, and these MMRC groups, it is their job to go through every maternal death that occurs in a state and 
essentially do a case review of those deaths. And so that information um, is pooled nationally. And so they look at deaths in various states of folks post, you know, up to 12 months post-birth. Um, and so I think there's there's certainly a lot of different issues or a lot of different things or action steps that can be taken um, around maternal mortality and morbidity. Um, and there's, cause we have our physical health pieces, right? Like a lot of these deaths are due to um, preeclampsia, to help syndrome, to blood clots. So we do have some good data on what some of those physical health outcomes would be. And around those, you know, as a psychologist, I can't speak specifically to the, um, you know, the medical piece, but certainly um, from a care perspective, um, I certainly think one thing that is not certainly doesn't feel like rocket science to me is engaging and listening to patients around what they're experiencing. And I think for patients of color, not being afraid as a provider to bring race into the room and say, I realize as um, a white person or, you know, like that, you know, you may be having a different experience than I might be having. I just want to open up that as a conversation and see how you're feeling. Um, and that really allows the birther to respond in a way that's affirming to them um, and to share what their concerns might be. And it just can create safety in a relationship where there may not be inherent safety. And I think that's something that providers can do today, yesterday, tomorrow. Um, it doesn't cost anything to connect with patients and be willing to have those conversations. I think there's a lot of things at the systems level that um, that could be better and at the community level that could be better. So our, our maternal health system is such that essentially you get, you know, supposedly all this medical care, all these appointments, you go, you have the baby and they're like, goodbye, good luck. Thank you. You're released. Um, you go back at six weeks postpartum and there's no additional support. And I think this, that really from the mental health perspective um, is really challenging um, to have no community of support um, as we are in a culture that is very focused on the nuclear family rather than having a community of folks around you. Um, and so I think there's a lot of interventions at the community level um, that could provide more support, whether it's home, more home visitation programs, um, programs like the birth squad, whereby we're providing spaces, groups um, for moms and birthers to connect and talk about the emotional experiences around birth, providing access to perinatally trained mental health professionals at no cost um, to the community. Um, and then I think there certainly is more work to be done around funding, the funding of um, doula work and midwifery. And these have been providers that have historically supported um, black birthers in our community. And there are policies and reimbursement issues right now that don't allow them to, um, you know, fully be compensated for their work or to be a part of the care team at a hospital or at a medical facility, which is a real missed opportunity, um, in my opinion. So real missed opportunity to bring in doulas and more mid midwives um, into these traditional care settings and allow them to support Black birthers and their families. And also when you think about how diverse they are or aren't, you know, I um, it might have gotten slightly better, but as recently as a couple years ago, my understanding was we had one Black licensed midwife in Colorado who lived in the Springs. Yes. 
Um, and I remember talking to her and she said, well, there's somebody else behind me, but that was just like one person. And yeah. even with the doulas, I know there's an effort to have more of them, but I also feel that, like there are barriers to having folks being able to pursue those professions. Of course, of course. You do. I think talking about the issues around systemic racism, um, this that is certainly not something that um, we're only seeing in healthcare around this work. So the workforce pipeline, um, even to become a psychologist, right? You're talking about about a 10-year commitment um, in terms of undergrad level, graduate level education, fellowships, additional training. Um, and there's a lot of social capital that one um, a lot of times need to has needs to have access to um, in order to get into these spaces. And these are spaces that our community has historically and currently is sometimes intentionally locked out of. And so I think that's a real challenge, not that there is not a desire or skill in our community around pursuing these professions, but, you know, we're still dealing with some of those um, historical and systemic, um, you know, systemic oppressive systems in this. So I remember years ago chatting with folks at the state and they were telling me that in addition to the things we've talked about that lead to maternal death, one um, driver is actually perinatal substance abuse. Yeah. Can you speak to um, your knowledge on that topic? Yeah, I think that perinatal substance use and abuse um, it still remains a under-addressed topic from a treatment perspective, from a screening perspective, particularly for moms and birthers um, in the Black community. And I think there are some reasons for that. I think that um, certainly on the front end, there is an immense fear of disclosure um, that systems and child welfare will be called in to remove um, babies from a mother's care. And so I think oftentimes we don't even have the data that we need um, to understand truly what the issues have been um, fully um, because there is such a fear uh, of disclosure and it's not an unfounded fear. Um, you know, certainly the war on drugs, disproportionate incarceration, um, disproportionate involvement with child welfare systems. Um, you know, these are all broad issues that, um, would lead a black mom or birther to not disclose. Um, black moms and birthers are often are also offered treatment at lower rates. Um, there's often there's often historically been, excuse me, a um, lean on just calling in child welfare, excuse me, and child protection. Um, and so I think we are still just even learning what the breadth of this issue has been. Um, and I know there was a quote unquote, crack baby epidemic, you know, like there were lots of babies that were being born on substances, um, you know, in <clears throat> the 80s. And so there, there was kind of some conversation then around, um, you know, babies that were born um, addicted to substances and how that should be addressed. But that approach has always been quite punitive um, and really has not always focused on um, screening intervention and um, really trying to help um, Black birthers, you know, get into a place of recovery. You know, the, and the system has never made it easy for birthing people to ask for help. Um, I remember, I think it was about a year ago, that it was a white mother in California 
let someone know that, you know, she was kind of concerned about herself, what she was thinking and her child's safety and was arrested. Correct. And so it's, as a woman of color, I'm like, well, wait a minute, if this white woman can't even go in, yes. why would someone who's a woman of color even think about that? Absolutely. I'm certainly not telling my provider this, you know, I'm not telling my pediatrician about this. I'm not telling my, you know, I'm not telling anybody. I'm not telling my lactation consultant about this. And, you know, unfortunately, the effect that it has is we have a lot of um, black women birthers and their families that are dealing, you know, that this becomes sort of an issue that is brushed under the rug. It's silent or it gets to a point where we could have intervened at most multiple points um, to help um, a birther and their family. And we've sort of missed those opportunities to intervene from a treatment perspective. Um, but I will say kind of across the board for um, all the perinatal population, substance misuse um, and the perinatal period remains a topic that's hard for many to disclose and discuss. And then adding the identity of blackness on top of that, um, you know, certainly adds an additional layer. How do you imagine the recent like Roe v. Wade disintegration and what states are doing, um, not so much as, for me, it's, it's, it's more than, you know, are you pro-choice? Are you pro-life? It's, are you pro a woman having access to the health, the reproductive health she needs? Absolutely. And as that's being whittled away, what, um, what do you think folks like you and I really need to do to make, if we want to make sure we're doing, I can't think, I'm not, my question is not coming out. But I'm trying to, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> what, should we, what should we do? Cause it's only going to get harder, not easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the impact of Roe v. Wade, I think folks often immediately in their minds go only to abortion access. And that's part of reproductive health. That's a part of women's health, but it's not the whole picture. And I think what's been interesting from a psychologist who works in perinatal and perinatal mental health spaces is that the fears are a women's health in general is under attack um, when policies like Roe v. Wade um, are implemented in states and at the, you know, like in, implemented in states. And the impact that I see for the perinatal population is sometimes we do have birthers and women who are in situations where they do not want to have more children, um, either for physical health reasons or for mental health reasons. Um, they may not be in, in safe situations where they have access to contraception to stop a pregnancy before it begins. And so I think for those of us that are supporting folks from a mental health perspective, it's extremely concerning. Um, <clears throat> And around what we can do, I think continuing to be involved and engaged in public policy and advocacy that is happening locally in our community at a city level, at a state level, um, is critically important. Um, making sure that we're calling our representatives and we're calling our senators and we're calling our legislators and letting them know where we stand on these issues and certainly supporting folks with storytelling. I think lifting up the voices of the birthers and women in community that are impacted by these policies is also critical because I do think sometimes um, for folks policy, right? The word policy or legislation can feel really far away. You know, it feels like it may not impact always their day-to-day -day life. And it's like, well, we're in Colorado and maybe this is a, a safe environment and what, you know, so I think it can sometimes for folks that are just trying to move through their day, 
um, it can feel somewhat far away until it touches them or their family or someone they care about. And certainly something that I do is try to connect folks um, with organizations, platforms where they can share their story if they're comfortable, lift up their voices. Cause I think those stories are so important um, for our legislators and folks that are writing these policies and implementing these policies to hear, um, you know, that there, there is just, you know, these, these policies and their impact is wide ranging. And so I think we can lift up folks through our work, right, with formal policy and being involved in those processes, but certainly encouraging and supporting community um, and helping people find access to safe and affirming spaces um, if they're struggling um, with decisions around reproductive health. That's certainly something that um, I feel like I do a lot in my work is certainly not pushing folks either way on decision making because that's not my role as a provider. My role is really to help um, community members understand what their safe options might be. And so there's work that we can do on the systems level in terms of policy engagement. There's work on the community level in terms of helping folks lift up their stories, tell their stories, share on platforms. And then there's that individual work of helping folks find safe and affirming providers and spaces um, to help them make these healthcare decisions. And, you know, you're so right. We can't, we really can't take anything for granted, especially when it, it's not touching our life per se. Yeah. I was I had the opportunity to be part of a roundtable discussion recently um, with folks working on reproductive rights. And one of the things we've seen since this decision, one of the things we've noticed in Colorado since this decision is because we are a place where this is still possible, our access has actually plummeted because folks are coming in from out of state um, and they're not necessarily low income folks. So the people who would normally be going to safety nets can't get in because you've got people coming from Texas and other places. So it's an interesting, um, not side effect, but it's an interesting dynamic to- Oh to yeah, like a secondary impact, right? Like there's right. so many secondary impacts. Cause I think too, you know, we're talking about the black birthing population, right? So folks often assume they're like, well, these are women and birthers that want to have babies or they've had babies. So how does this affect them? Um, and like I was sharing too, a lot of the conversation that I'm having with folks is more around, they don't want to have more, you know, what if I don't want to have more children? Mm -hmm. Dr. G, what if I, what, what am I going to do if I don't want to have more children? Um, because I do feel like my health either physically or mentally would be negatively impacted. And I want to be able to make that decision. Right. And so it really does. There are all of these at, like rippling effects, I think, that, um, you know, that aren't always clear, I guess, on the front end. Um, because folks are like, well, this doesn't really does this really impact? And it's like, of course, it impacts um, women and birthers across the board. Of course, it does. It's a part of women's re and reproductive health. So the, I think there's all of these kind of secondary um, secondary impacts. So earlier we were talking about weathering and just the day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year impact of living within a systemically racist environment. There's also been a lot more talk these days around self-care. Yeah. And on the one hand, um, I like the fact that it's being talked about more, I think, 
more organizations and peoples and people and systems need to support people in pursuing self-care because we really do act like it's a, a luxury versus really being a necessity. Yep. And so in the, in the work you're doing with moms, whether it's birth squad or the folks that you see in these conversations we're having with wonderful folks like you, we want to talk about the situation, <clears throat> but also start thinking about what are some solutions? Yeah. So if I know a young person who's, if I know a person who's pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant or who's just a woman living day to day, what are some self-care, what are some things they can think about to support their own self-care? Oh my gosh, it's such a big and good question. It was such a big question. Um, because I think that we, for one, you know, something I talk a lot about with um, community and then with folks that I work with is just the the cultural messages that we get around um, early parenting and mothering. And one of the messages I think that is very clear in, in this culture um, and that I hear folks speak to all the time is that really mothering and early parenting, it's, a, it's self-sacrifice. And that's just what you do. You just self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so such a big story around that. And so, you know, certainly for me, I'm just like, let's take a step back and look at how these messages and these stories that we've heard are hurting us and harming us. Um, and, you know, as far as self-care is just care, right? These are like, you know, Mothers and birthing people have to take showers alone each day, have to bathe, have to rest. So these are just part of being human and being alive. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I'll hear moms and birthers say, well, you know, I'm taking a shower, Patrice, and that's my self-care. And I'm like, no, that's just care. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That's just part of being alive. Um, but I think it's a understanding So as far as like helping folks find what care means for them, um, what are the things in their lives that are affirming for them? So if it's going out for a walk, if it's going out for a coffee, if it's going out, you know, whatever the things are, if it's just sitting alone in silence, listening to, you know, meditation, what are those things um, that are affirming and restorative. And they're not always the same things as it looks like for the next person, right? Like right. So for some folks, they're like, oh, self-care is a five mile run. I mean, I don't know that I've heard that lately, but you know, for some folks, they're like, that's my self-care. And for others, it's like, man, I just want to, you know, like take a day off and stay in bed, you know, like just rest and watch Netflix for 12 hours and that's self-care. So understanding what that restorative and af- what those restorative and affirming um, things are for a bomber birther um, and identifying those. Two, I think it's in a real way um, understanding what others, what family members, what community members, what other supports are needed from others um, in a birther's life. And I talk about this a lot because parenting and raising babies is not something that anyone <laughs> can or does successfully do alone. Um, and so what are, who are folks from your job, neighbors, your church, who are the folks in your life that you can really count on, um, and how can they support you and specifically, what is it that you need from them? Because that's also a form of care. I think specifically for black women, um, to ask for help, to say, you know what, I really, really, really am struggling. 
And it can be a personal connection. It can be a professional connection, right? It could be a mama's helper. If that's something that's accessible, it could be a church member that says, Hey, I can bring you dinner for the next week. It could, I mean, there's so many things. And so I think, you know, it's around care for ourselves. Um, a, it's looking at what are the things that are restorative and affirming and they can be, it can truly be the gamut for some folks. It's not taking a bath with a candle. It's something very different. So understanding what that looks like for us and to understanding who can support you and making those things a priority and making them happen. Um, and then, you know, also, and I think you kind of called this out as well, Deidre, around this lifted up conversation around self-care, but just, I think, making sure that we're telling ourselves and assuring ourselves that we have to be cared for in order to be the mothers and the parents that we truly want to be. So we have to be cared for and we have to be lifted up as well. And so that that it's instead of feeling like I'm taking something away from my caregiving, you're giving something back to yourself and you deserve that. And then, you know, I think we often underestimate stress. And it's interesting because I was um, talking to some people just about, you know, mental health in that, no, it's mental health is not just, oh my goodness, you need um, to be institutionalized somewhere. There's a whole spectrum. Oh my gosh. Oftentimes, if you're, if you're really stressed out, just resolving some of those sources of stress, when you think about the different determinants, helps level other things out. So if you have like um, expected mom who is food insecure or um, may have housing challenges, all these things, um, you talk about cortisol, yeah. all these things have got to wreak havoc. And so um, we've got to get to a place where not only do we see people, but we see that whole person and think about how we can support them holistically and then so many other things just resolve themselves. Absolutely, Deidre. I mean, I think that's so critical to, I mean, like you just named kind of the point around what are the supports that you truly need and how can you get them? You know, so if it's that you need to connect with this organization who does food or this organization that can help with diapers or this organization that can help with, you know, supplying breast milk if you're not able to produce or this organization that can provide free lactation services. Um, certainly all of that contributes um, to stress in this time period. And I think sometimes the mom and the birther is left feeling like, I just can't handle this. Something's wrong with me. When really everyone needs support and help from community in mothering and parenting. And so how do we provide those trusted access points um, to support folks around all of those issues as they present? And I know we're going to be... Um working together in the coming year, just learning about different things we can do in this space. One of the things that's continued to bug me, and it, it happens in different areas, but when we think about data on this topic, you know, yes, we, we have the Maternal Mortality Review Committee, which only until recently started looking at data. Yeah. But even then, like, that's too late. That's like looking at the worst case scenario and when you think about people's unwillingness to come forward, we're not really truly understanding the magnitude of the problem. So one, one of my, if I had a magic wand, it would be to get a truer understanding of the magnitude of this problem so we can really tackle it, but that's not gonna happen 
until people feel safe enough to share what yeah. they're going through and until we can kind of normalize. Hey, you know, that when you read what to expect and you're expecting, it's a nice gesture, but yeah. it's nowhere near real life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Deidre. And I think, you know, just as you were asking, we were talking earlier about what is the work. Um, that's part of the work, I truly believe, is collecting these data points as folks start to feel like they are in places of trust. Um, you know, I, I listen to these stories nearly every day. Um, and so truly establishing um, community spaces of trust where folks are like, okay, maybe I can fill out this story or I can do an interview about my birth experience or, um, and, you know, once trust is established um, in community, then I think folks are very willing to um, come forward and make the, um, you know, come forward in a way that will help make systems and the process better for others. I mean, that's always the one thing about mothers specifically that blows me away is there seems to be such an intrinsic desire to help other mothers, to support other mothers, or to support folks that are going through the, you know, walking the same path. And so I think we can, um, you know, lean into that power and creating these trusted spaces where we can start to really collect that data, whether it's qualitative, qualitatively or quantitatively um, on the front end, right? Like hearing these stories or wait, thinking about creative ways to collect data along the way, right? If you have a bad experience or if you're, you're concerned, you know, what, how can we intervene, right? You, like you said, before the point of death. Um, how can we understand what's happening before the point of death? Um, and I think that as we continue to establish these places and spaces of trust, um, many of us that sit in those spaces hear these stories all the time. And so just thinking creatively, I think about ways that um, we can support these you know, data efforts, whether it's qualitatively or quantitatively. Um, there's a lot of work to be done around that. So Dr. Patrice, um, you've shared a little bit of it, but can you share with our listeners what, what really inspires you every day as you do this work? Oh my gosh, oh, such a hard question. There's so much um, that inspires me, but I think the thing that inspires me most truly um, is the strength and spirit of the mothers and the birthers that I work with. Um, Deidre, these are folks that are calling sometimes a complete stranger sharing um, the most intimate and most vulnerable parts of their life with me. Um, and it takes such strength and such courage um, and such fight to want to say like, I, I need help and I want things to be better. Um, and every time I hang up from one of those calls, it just reinvigorates me. Um, and also just hearing the work that I do at the birth squad is part of it is a peer model. So we have, um, mothers like myself with lived experience, and there's such an immense desire to serve community, to serve the perinatal community, to make sure that things um, are continuing to improve. And it truly lifts me up every day. It lifts me up. It makes me emotional. Um, and it it lifts me up and just keeps me going. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many parts of it, but I would certainly say that... Um, the strength, courage, and resiliency of um, the mothers and birthers here in our community just blows me away every day. 
So Dr. Patrice, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, a lot of people hear about maternal mortality, maternal morbidity. Can you help not only define those, but really share what that means to our listeners? Yeah, so <clears throat> essentially defining mortality and morbidity in the perinatal period. So mortality would be the state of being subject to death um, in the perinatal period related to giving birth. Um, so it's essentially dying um, from giving birth. That would be perinatal mortality. And morbidity would be um, the accumulation of health conditions uh, during the perinatal period. So it could be whether it's preeclampsia, whether it's fibroids, whether it's, there's a number of conditions, but morbidity would be, um, you know, the co-occurrence of various conditions related to pregnancy in the postpartum period. Um, and they're related in that um, high levels of morbidity, having multiple health conditions can lead to um, mortality, which would be death during the perinatal period. Thank you. So this is a question I have. So we know, for instance, the, the Maternal Mortality Review Committee is looking at mortality data. Yeah. Is anyone collecting morbidity data? Because I feel like that would be much more useful. You know, honestly, Deidre, I'm not, I know that the MMRC collects some of that data and that the hospitals collect some of it, but I actually don't know um, if anyone looks at that, the morbidity statistics outside of, um, in terms of Colorado moms, um, outside of like in the context of mortality. So Dr. Patrice, when we, you know, people often talk about maternal health, they talk about mental health. Mm -hmm. Why is it so important to really think about maternal mental health? Oh, such a big question, Deidre. There's so many, so many answers to this and I'll certainly share a few. I think sometimes perinatal mental health is not always included in conversations around maternal health broadly. I think oftentimes, especially around black maternal health, um, we immediately are talking about um, statistics around death and dying. Um, I think it, uh, it's, it's important for a few reasons. So one here in Colorado, um, so overdose deaths and suicide are in the top five leading causes of death. Um, for women in the perinatal, post-birth, the post-12 months after giving birth. Um, top five leading causes of death. And I think we are not the only state that has statistics that look like that. So we're seeing not only physical health causing death in the postpartum period, but we're also seeing mental health conditions um, causing death in the postpartum period. And mm -hmm. I think also just for um, mothers, and baby, I truly think the health of a community um, is defined by how the health of the baby's children and also mothers. So this is a real um, this is a real community health indicator. And so when we have moms in our community that are struggling from a mental health perspective, um, you know, it really signals poor health on the part of the entire community. And so when folks sometimes will ask me, well, why, you know, if I don't have kids or I don't, you know, why should this be something that I should really care about? Um, it's an indicator of community health. And, um, you know, certainly moms and birthers in our community have a right, in my opinion, to thrive and be cared for. 
and to be supported um, in their journey. Um, and that's the job of a community. And it's another aspect of that two-generation approach that we often talk about in early childhood spaces, because that caregiver, if you really care about the, even if you can't see your way to care about another woman or human being who's an adult, and you're, you call yourself caring about children, making sure that child has a caregiver that's as healthy as possible. Yes. It helps that child. So I feel like even if folks are being myopic, there are different ways into this discussion to really help under, people understand we have to see the vulnerability and humanity of both generations in this journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and caregivers, mothers, parents have have to be in good emotional states of emotional health to be good caregivers, to attach, to bond, to truly be um, and show up in ways that allow them to be the best they can be in terms of taking care of their children. And so if mental health is not intact, um, it just has so many impacts, right? Like you were speaking to down the line for development, for attachment, these things that we know are so critical um, to a child's health and well-being. So if those, you know, certainly there's a clear relationship and it's documented also um, decades and decades of literature um, on the impact of um, negative, you know, negative perinatal mental health conditions and bonding and attachment and development for babies and young children. You know, we always make sure that people have information on how to get connected to different programs that we do. For instance, the birth squad with you, as well as getting help via um, our partnership with Therapist of Color Collaborative. But do you have any words for anyone as you um, as we wind up our conversation today? Absolutely, just would love to share one additional resource. So uh, the Birth Squad Denver is a program of Postpartum Support International Colorado. And this is a nonprofit organization that the sole focus is perinatal mental health and supporting moms, birthers, and their families through the perinatal period from a mental health perspective. There are incredible resources that are no charge. So your insurance type does not matter. Um, and so would love to share Postpartum Support International as a resource. They have chapters in nearly every state um, across the country, and including here in Colorado. Um, and then would also love to just include information about the National Maternal Mental Health Hotline. So the National Maternal Mental Health Hotline is a free, confidential, 24-7, 365 um, treatment referral and information service um, in both English and Spanish. So if you're not able to connect with a provider locally in your community um, through another entity or another way, um, the National Maternal Mental Hotline, Health Hotline is available and accessible to all. So just like for folks to have Postpartum Support International and then also the National Maternal Mental Health Hotline as resources. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, and you know, thank you for being our birth <laughs> equity warrior. Oh. Because you really are. <laughs> I don't know if we're still recording, but don't make me cry, Deidre. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, thank you. Thank you for all the work that the center does um, to support communities always. And Deidre, you know, you've always been someone that I've admired and respected so much how you move through spaces and just so grateful that you're in this work.
Well, that's our show for today. Our next episode will be part one of the Pearls of Wellness education series with special guest, Dr. Rosemary Allen. We're gonna be discussing the preschool to prison pipeline and how the high expulsion rates among black children starts as early as preschool. You won't wanna miss this next discussion. It is eye-opening and heartbreaking. I'm thankful that there are change agents like Dr. Allen working to protect our children. Today, I wanna share one of my favorite poems by Dr. Maya Angelou, Still I Rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room? Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still, I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head and lowered eyes? Shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Because I laugh like I got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling. I bear in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear. I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise. I rise, I rise. Thank you again for tuning in to The Pearls of Wellness, brought to you by the Center for African American Health. I'm your host, Deidre Johnson. Remember, everything can be transformed. So design the life that you want to live.